0: This episode is supported by Canyon Coffee, a Los Angeles-based roastery making coffee with exclusively single origin and certified organic beans. Check out their beautiful new shop in Echo Park, Los Angeles, serving delicious items such as fig leaf lattes and Lebanese toasts. If you haven't tried Canyon yet, order a fresh roasted bag at canyoncoffee.co and enter winesplaining at
1: checkout for 15% off your first order. Do it. You don't need that much money. I had like basically no money when I started my company and no investors and no anything. You just need a lot of hustle. So, you know, do it. Whatever it is that you're dreaming about, do it. And also have fun doing it and love doing it and love the people you do it with.
0: Welcome to Wine Splanning, the podcast that peels back the layers of the women's journeys that are shaping the wine business. Here with Amy Atwood for this wine episode. She is a wine porter and a distributor extraordinaire, and so, so many other things. All around, one of my favorite people. Not only do I consider her a truly close friend, but also a fierce businesswoman, a mentor, and an ally, and one of the main forces in the natural wine world. So, Often, people talk about sommeliers and restaurateurs and even wine buyers as being the stars and tastemakers driving what's new and hot in the market. I happen to disagree with this to an extent, as it's really the importers and distributors that are giving U.S. buyers our options to bring to consumers. I often refer to importers and wine reps as the unsung heroes of the industry. So I'm excited for everyone to hear us peel back some of the layers of Amy's life and how her industry works, uh, and how she's gotten to where she is and where she's going. So, welcome to WineSplaining, Amy Atwood. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> so excited! <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. Lots of great <laughs> things. So, I just before we dive into you know your life and past, I just wanted to share a quick story of how I first met Amy. So I was opening Perch at the time, which is a rooftop restaurant venue, and we weren't quite open yet. And it's an interesting venue because it was built on top of a 13-story building. And our office was on the original 13th floor. And it's kind of a matrix to get to where our office was. You have two elevators. There was no you know, signs saying on where to go. And we were all around the corridor, like three hallways down. So it was a fortress, so to speak. And we were all in our office. Uh, we shared one. It was like the events team and me and my my business partner. And we were working. And, you know, you could kind of hear something echo down the hall. And I hear this rolly case. And here comes Amy Atwood, in her floral dress, and her little bag with her wine in it. And, you know, she comes to the office right away, no no qualms, very confident, and is like, hi, I want to sell you some wine. And at that time, I was a little, uh, just wanting to deal with the reps that I had dealt with at my previous restaurant. I wasn't looking at any new books. I was being a little maybe snobbish, uh, so to speak. And kind of, you know, politely told her that, you know, now we weren't really looking for anything. And the same scenario happened another, like, two or three times. <laughs> we'd be sitting in the office. We'd hear the wheelie cart. Here she would come <laughs> in her sundress down the hallway. And after, you know, a, a few times, it was like, okay, yeah, let's taste your wine. So I'm just super curious because I don't think we've really <laughs> talked about this much. You know, what were you thinking back then? I know you were probably just starting out with your book because that's not something Amy does anymore.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean... I was actually just thinking about this the other day, because I've had the my company now for I guess I'm starting to go on thirteen years. Uh, and I was thinking it the other day uh, just about all the hustle <laughs> in the first few years. And yeah, it was a new a new company, a new portfolio, and also the the, the wines um, that I was selling, um, which were you know, very small production, natural wines, <clears throat> were also new. To the California market, for the most, place, most part, there were only there was only one other company that had just started bringing in a few natural wines. I think like three months before me, so it was a tiny, tiny part of the wine industry back then. And um, and I think the wines, you know, were very unfamiliar to a lot of sommeliers and wine buyers. Um, so uh, it was, I mean, every wine sales rep or wine company owner you know, has to hustle at the beginning. Uh, (laughs) I I think it was a little bit double hustle back then because nobody really wanted to talk about natural wines or or knew what they were. So it was not just, uh, you know, getting the appointment, which could be hard enough in itself, but then um, having to really engage in like an explanatory process about what these wines are and what was interesting about them and, and why they should taste them. That makes sense. Um, so for people who are listening,
0: could you just give us a little elevator pitch of what is the role of an importer and what
1: is the role of a distributor? Sure. So a wine importer is importing wines from, I mean, technically, it could be anywhere outside of California, but for the sake of this conversation, we're talking about outside of the U.S. Uh, so you're actually, people go about it a little bit of different ways. I do have my full licensing. So I, when I import, direct import, I do it myself under my own licensing. Some people use companies, licensing companies for that. And yeah, basically you're, you know, you're communicating with this winemaker across the world about the order, um, usually months in advance. And then you're handling all the shipping, trucking, everything to get it here. Uh, and then if you are a distributor as well, You can sell it yourself in the state you live in. If not, you sell the wines you import to a distributor, to a local distributor. I happen to play both roles. So if I direct import wines, then here in California, I'm also a distributor, a wholesaler. So myself and my team sell wines to restaurants and wine retailers here in California.
0: Okay, so you can be an importer
1: or a distributor or both. Correct. Got it. Okay, so now we now we know kind yeah. of the, the bare people, bones. Yeah, some people are only one or the other, and and there are other people that are both as well. Yeah, and of course you're both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so
0: now let's let's kind of rewind everything and and kind of start a little bit at the beginning of time, Amy's timeline, and um, talk about uh, how you came to be. So I know you grew up in Texas. Um, tell me about your family life growing up.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Texas and Dallas um, from a very large family. I have five siblings. so There were six of us running around. Are you still close? Yes, I am still close um, to, yes, to everyone, to, you know, in differing degrees, as we all are with our siblings. But, yes, I'm still close to my family. Uh, I did come from, you know, there was not a lot of wine around me growing up. Mm -hmm. I came from a relatively religious family and upbringing. Uh, so that was not really part of my life. But I think back then the thing that was um, indulged was that I did have a curiosity about foods, all kinds of foods, not just the southern and Mexican foods that I grew up with, but foods from around the world. And my parents, especially my mother, were supportive of that. Uh, and then I went to New York. Lived well... In- Yeah, yeah. To stay with that for a second. Sure.
0: Did you think about maybe being a chef? No. No. You just had this curiosity about food. No, I mean, I
1: did briefly when I was like in my 20s, not when I was a teenager. But, you know, when I was in my 20s, first of all, chefs were not cool. (laughs) True. But but, but second of all, I think more so I remember thinking, I just love cooking so much. I don't want to do it. For a living. Yeah, I don't want to do it for a living. Do you remember what you did want to be when you were growing up at that time? yeah like a a psychologist or sociologist,
0: okay, so you wanted to get into people's minds and
1: not so much more a psychologist more of like a social worker or sociologist, so you wanted to help people, yeah, which is actually what I did in New York
0: okay, great um and what was it like kind of growing up queer in this conservative community family state yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> no I mean it was it was it was not easy, especially <clears throat> especially then because we're we're talking you know thirty thirty five years ago now. Um, so there certainly weren't the support mechanisms nor the sense of community that I think, um, teenagers and adolescents can find online nowadays because we didn't have online anything. The, the interwebs did not exist back then. Things will get better. Uh, yeah. Yeah. None of that existed back then. So, I think it did teach me a lot of, like, survival skills and how to just put my head down and get through. So, you think it shaped you in a certain way? As oh, definitely. Being tough? Oh, definitely. Very much so. You know, it's, <clears throat> it's interesting because I've even, and I say, you know, I, I do have five siblings. or six of us. And um, I'm, <clears throat> you know, yes. It it, teach, it it really taught me to be tough. I, I You know, I ended up not graduating college because of coming out to my family. So you were in college uh, when you came out? Yeah, I was in my, yes, I was 19. In Texas? No, I'd actually just moved to New York. Okay. Um, and and you're like,
0: yeah, New and York, it's, I'm gay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, hi, I'm
1: gay. I mean, I knew it before I went to New York. Okay. But, but when I got to New York, I told them. And, you know, they had they were paying for my college. And, you know, they cut me off when I came out, hmm. which wouldn't have been a problem because in, in a perfect world, I would have been able to get, you know, a student loan or student aid. But I wasn't able to because they'd had me on their tax returns for two years, and you have to be off of their tax returns for two years before you can apply as an individual for a student loan. Is that why you left college? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because I couldn't get a student loan. I didn't, and I didn't have any money, so I went to work. And but but the point is is I think that that definitely framed who I am as a person, and that. Um, you know, there, there was no safety net. I had to be the safety net. And yeah, I think. It's scary. Yeah, it's scary, but I think it also helped me become an entrepreneur. Sure. I was like, there's also, I mean, when I started my company, there was no safety net. I had no money. It was like, you either make this work or you don't, but there's no safety net. Nobody's gonna come bail you out. Do or die. <laughs> Do or die. Do <laughs> or die. <laughs> so you're 19, you're in mm. New York, mm-hmm. you just got
0: cut off from your family. Mm-hmm. What's life
1: looking like? Um, well, I went to go work um, for the Hedrick-Martin Institute. Okay. Uh, which, what, what which is people, in? Yeah. So Hedrick-Martin Institute was many things to, uh, to the queer community. Uh, first of all, I think they had the first licensed high school in the U.S., as far as I know, uh, for the LGBTQA community. Uh, they also had... Um, a homeless outreach office, which is where I worked, okay, so um, this is
0: the social worker, this is yeah where, yeah, okay,
1: yeah, ahead. and so I did that for several years, um actually, still one of my closest friends um that I met there, and we're still now thirty years later, he's still one of my closest friends, and he, he was another street counselor with me, so we were street counselors, we were going out and offering you know health care um Drug treatment. They could also come to the center to take showers and to eat and to get fresh clothing. Um, what was New York like at that time? Was it? it was, yeah, it was in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. definitely. I mean, and definitely, you know, this it's it's ironic now because our office was about I I don't know, block or two from the meatpacking district, which everybody knows now is like you know trendy. Yeah, Thanks Louis to Louis Vuitton shops <laughs> and, um, but back then, it actually really was a meatpacking district. Um, so there were meatpacking companies during the day that were open and at night, it was relatively deserted and dark. And there were a couple of queer clubs like the Clit Club, which is kind of a famous lesbian club, the Clit Club. It's a very famous lesbian club in New York, uh, in the nineties. Did you frequent this club? Many, many, many times, (laughs) many, many, many times. Um, but also our... Our clients, these you know, these um, queer and trans um, youth, homeless youth, were also you know they were working the streets there too. So our so office that's where you would go to like well, help. And th- well, and that's why our office was near because okay. it was only like a couple of blocks from where they were working. Okay. So they could come to the office for any all kinds of help and support. Uh, so yeah, I did that for
0: about three years. Okay. And and, I mean, as a very young person, I mean, that must have been either, I mean, I think of some of the things that I did when I was young as either brave or stupid, most likely stupid, (laughs) Uh, you know, putting myself in dangerous situations. Uh, But, you know, that takes a lot of, you know, maturity,
1: really. And maybe also, I think, you know, in hindsight, you know, coming out of this kind of traumatic being cut off from my family and all of that and i'm talking about the emotional trauma not the financial trauma <laughs> but um maybe in an indirect and unknowing way at that at that moment in my life uh, i think it was a um opportunity to learn gratitude so sure i had been cut off from my family and i couldn't go to college for the time being um But I was also actively helping these queer youth who, yes, were only a few years younger than me, um, who had even less resources. Do you still
0: think of this now to this day? I mean, are these like lessons that you learned and have kept with you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sounds impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what made you transition out of that role?
1: Uh, I think I also got a little bit burnt out after a few years. Because it's, um, I mean, anybody who's worked in any way in, in the social worker uh, field, um, it can be it can be a little heartbreaking and disheartening. Um, to I mean, for me, number one was the trauma that our clients were having on the streets. Um, and like I said, very different time back then too. I mean, and and and. Although, and I'm not saying that we don't still have this issue today. We do. We definitely still have this issue today um, uh, with both queer and, I think, even more so trans youth, um, being vulnerable, um, being financially vulnerable, not having support mechanisms, not having, as we said, safety nets. Um, and, you know, certainly I know there have been trans youth, specifically back then, and I think it's still happening now, that because there there, there is no that support mechanism um, you know, working the streets was the only way that they could eat, right? so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think after several years, I was just like, you know, I love all these kids so much, but I just don't think I can personally do this anymore. Like, I mean, you were a kid yourself in a yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I was. I was quite young. Yeah, yeah, I was quite young. They were a little bit younger than me, but I was, I was still quite young. So it was, I, that was really it. Um, I felt like I, you know, I had done it for as much as, as long as I could do it. Um, and then I kind of transitioned into, um, you know, I, I I did end up meeting, uh, meeting someone and moving to Australia. Someone like... Like an Australian lady. Someone romantic. Yeah, a romantic partner. (laughs) Uh, and I moved, ended up moving to Australia and I was there for seven years between Melbourne and Sydney. And that's really when I got into the hospitality and beverage sector. Okay. So you followed, um...
0: A lady friend to Australia. Yes. And yeah, as many of us find a- ourselves in the hospitality industry, it's just, you know, an easy way to make money. Uh, yes. You know, k- quick money, have lots of time, uh, you know, bartending, serving, all these right. things. Right. So you that's kind of what the outlet was for right. you. Right. You
1: can do, you can make decent money. You don't need a college degree. Yeah. Um, lots of time on your hands. Yeah. So, although it is funny because actually, well, I actually went to Australia. So just to make the story a little bit more clear, I didn't follow someone to Australia. I, I went to Australia to visit um, a couple of friends, and then I ended up meeting my girlfriend, who I was with for um, seven years. Oh, okay. Um, but I actually met her at a job interview, as in she was interviewing me. She was me. your boss. <laughs> she was my boss. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she was my boss, and she was about to open this big nightclub, um, what was it called? God, I can't even remember now. Oh, it's, that's too many. That's too many years ago. <laughs> and we ran a few nightclubs together, so some of them I do remember the names of, but just not that, that one. First
0: one, and you're t- we're in Sydney, right? Uh, this was actually
1: Melbourne. in Melbourne. Melbourne. This was actually in Melbourne. Melbourne. We did run a couple of things in Sydney later together, but um, I do remember that when she called me in for the interview, uh, I mean, I just looked at her and I was like, yes. I'm, I want I want that. <laughs> I want to work want, for you. I want to work for you. <laughs> um, but I. But the biggest memory is that my first night of bartending, because I had never bartended before. Okay. And I totally faked it. That's and,
0: that's how I started bartending, too. Yeah, They're like, can you bartend? It. And I said, yes.
1: Yes. I was like, yes, I can bartend. Yes. I'm great at bartending. <laughs> um, but my very first night of bartending in Australia was this... Nightclub, not the new one she was opening, but one that she was currently running while they were building out this other one. My first night was a 12-hour shift. I got there at 8 p.m. I left at 8 a.m. We had 4,000 people through the nightclub that night. So you can imagine the bar was about eight deep. I had no idea what I was doing. Also, I could not understand anybody. Because of the accent. Because of the accent. (laughs) And I hadn't been in Australia very long at that point. So, and there was just, like, pounding club So music. everybody got vodka tonics? Everybody got vodka tonics, or <laughs> who knows what they got. But uh, Anyway, th- so that was my baptism into bartending, which I did do for many years. Mm-hmm. I, I bartended for many years in Australia, and, and then eventually became, like, a beverage manager, um, etc. But bartending was really um, the beginning of me getting into the beverage world. Okay. Um, and then... We did go on to open several other places together. Did you get into craft cocktails at that point? Or was it just kind of like club cocktails? Well, at the beginning, it was just club cocktails, for sure. Um, But no, the first place that we opened together as like managers, I was the bar manager and she was like the general manager. Um, No, we did like a full, this, I mean, this is a long time ago. This is way before people were even using the term mixology.
0: Sure.
1: Um, but we, I remember we had, like, alcoholic milkshakes and, like, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, we actually started partnering uh, with an investor, this older gay man, hmm. um, and he had bought a bunch of properties and had no idea what to do with them, restaurants, nightclubs, wine bars, what have you. So we basically came, kind of came on as his management team. Okay. So then I, again, got a bump into another situation where I had no idea what I was doing. because But didn't, you said you did. <clears throat> but I said I did, <laughs> as par for the course. Um, but they, you know, I had been running these, like, nightclub bars, which was fine. Like, I was doing the ordering. I was doing the, the, the cocktail menus, all of that. That was all fine and good. But then the first kind of, like, fine dining-ish restaurant You know, and they put me in charge of the wine list. And I was like, I can do that. And so is this like the moment, the wine moment? Well, I already kind of knew that I was obviously very interested in wine. Um, We were like, you know, we were it was in Australia. And of course, there's some amazing wines out of Australia. So, I mean, we were drinking wine like my girlfriend and I and with our friends. And um, I just didn't know much. But I knew I liked it. And I was around it quite a bit. We would even go visit wineries sometimes. So I knew I liked it and was interested in it, but I really didn't have any real knowledge yet. I mean, I literally didn't even know that you were supposed to, like, spit during a professional wine tasting. I'm, like, sitting there drinking. Wait, you're supposed to spit? No, I know, I know. <laughs> it's, so <funny. laughs> it's so funny. I have told that story over the years many times when I'm meeting, especially with, like, new wine, you know, sommiers or directors or whatever, just people who are new. To the business. I, I try to tell them that story to kind of like, you know, disarm them, make them a little bit more comfortable, and be like, hey, I remember when I had no idea what I was doing. I knew basically nothing about wine, and I'd been put in charge of this restaurant wine list. And and yeah, I literally didn't even know to spit.
0: Also, learning to spit is a, a real uh-huh. uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. challenge to some people, myself included. I've had some very embarrassing uh, moments where it's dribbling down my chin and you think you're being super cool. No, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Spid- I, spitting is an art. I actually remember um, practicing it yeah. in the sink with water. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm really interested in wine. That's kind of where I want to start focusing. And how am I going to, like, learn? So I just went out and bought all these books, like all the books I could find on wine. And I read them. Great place and, to start. And, you know, we would go visit wineries occasionally and stuff like that. But it was mostly reading books, which I still have a lot of them in my, my home office. Like, um, so that's really where my first knowledge came from were all these books I was reading and I remember reading in the books about oh you're supposed to spit (laughs) and they were like describing how you do it and I was like okay well I'm just going to teach myself Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's what I did okay taught myself so you uh,
0: get this fine dining gig you are now the wine director of something Mm -hmm. you know schmancy I'm I'm assuming Um, you're still in Melbourne yeah I'm still in Melbourne okay um and where? how do you start going about picking wine for this place?
1: Oh, well, don't, I mean, you know, it's like you. You've been a buyer many times and owned several businesses. You know, the, the reps, the sales reps, you know, they smell fresh meat. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take everything. Just like a shark in the ocean. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it wasn't so much. I mean, the, the sales reps, and uh, you know, started coming in like immediately circling and, and being like, I think you should do this and you should do that. And, you know, I think it's much like nowadays, some of them, um, you know, became friends over time and and were helpful to my knowledge about wine. Um, so, you know, I mean, to me, this kind of goes back to what you were saying at the beginning. Of the podcasts is, and I, I believe this too, by the way, sales reps, they receive the, the less amount of attention and praise for their work compared to anybody else in the wine industry. And they probably do the most. They are definitely like the worker ants. 100%. Of the wine industry. They're also the most abused. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Verbally <laughs> and in every other way. Um, so, um, so yeah. So you leaned to start, you leaned on your, your reps. Yeah, at of, the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, at the beginning, I was leaning on the reps. I was reading and learning. Um, and still, you, you know, I I think it's interesting to me because my knowledge um, and my palate uh, for wine, I mean, even once I jumped in full time, which was like really in the late 90s, um, I mean, it still took you know, that was, it took six or seven years of that. of, And that's when I was, was full time working wine and reading about wine and, and buying wine. And, um, it still took six or seven years before I knew like literally anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, wine, like most fields, it's kind of the more you learn, the less, you know, I, yes. I mean, wine is vast and that's, that's what kind of made me, you know, fall in love with wine. When I first started learning about it, I realized how much goes into each bottle mm-hmm. and how much we take, for granted, like that love, that mm-hmm. passion, that um, you know, sweat, the tears, you know, the bad, Literally. the bad years, the bad money. That you know, it's it's not a glamorous gig whatsoever. Which, you know, we definitely romanticize wine, but it's there's a lot that goes into every single bottle. So that I mean, that's what turned me onto wine is like learning and seeing how much to know. And how much can go wrong.
1: Absolutely. Like the geography, the history. And I agree with you. I've, you know, I've said to people many times, one of the main reasons that I became interested in wine and then, and then remained in the wine industry all these years is it's, and, and not that there aren't other industries like this, there are, but it, it was something that I loved that I knew I could never know everything. Yeah. That I would always be learning. Yeah. And that appealed to me. Yeah. Because I don't like to be bored. I hear that. <laughs> I think you and
0: I are very similar in that sense where yeah. we're always onward and upward. So, OK, let's go back to your, your timeline so we can get to all the other things that you do. So at this point, you're running, you know, this kind of multi-establishments mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. this. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. uh, I was a beverage director and it, so there was a big nightclub. There was a, a smaller wine bar. Um, There was a restaurant. So he ran several places, and I was the beverage manager for all, and I was doing all the purchasing What was your partner doing at the time? General manager, so running, like, every operation. So she was running all the employees. You were handling the... Beverage. Okay, cool. Yeah, basically the beverage. Um, And then then she also designed everything, too. Matter of fact, she's still an interior designer to this day for hotels and restaurants and what have you around the world. Um, So... uh, Yeah, so that was kind of like my day-to-day doing that, and then when my partner and I decided to part ways, and I was coming back to the U.S., I was very clear in my mind. So you guys, it just romantically wasn't working out? Romantically, yeah.
0: And that's when you decided to leave Australia. You didn't want to stay there? You had built, like, a life there?
1: Yeah, I had, but, you know, I think, you know, I knew at that point, you know, I had been in Uh, the hospitality sector for quite a while and I knew I was ready to do something different and I wanted to get out of it. I knew I wanted to do wine and I thought well I'm just starting a whole new chapter in my life anyway so I might as well go back to the U.S. I haven't lived there in quite a while and I'm, I'm starting kind of afresh anyway so why not go back and um but no of course I had like I you know I had friends I'd built a life um so I went back to texas for a couple of years texas yeah texas. yeah yeah so to, dallas yeah i went back to dallas for a couple of years um you know i think you know i'd been in new york for seven i'd been in australia for seven so i'd been away for 14 were you in your early 30s at this point or yeah yeah okay yeah exactly so i hadn't really seen or spent much time with my family at all and and we had reconciled since they had you know uh, uh disowned me and, you know, I do have such a large family and I thought, well, I'll go back there and decide which coast I'm going to go to because obviously I'm going to live on a coast in the U.S., either the east or the west. Um, but, you know, in some obviously, that, yeah, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, it ended up being a good thing for in many ways. Those couple of years I did, in truth, did get to spend a lot of time that was meaningful to me uh, with in my, Texas. Yeah. With my family, etc. But it also did give me a time to get my bearings I did um, work for a couple of uh, smaller uh, distributors there that were doing not natural wine, but they were doing, but I was getting closer. (laughs) They were doing like, you know, small production, like family owned, like it wasn't, you know. Um, Although it's interesting because I did do about just about a year long stint at Glazers, which is basically like Southern Wine and Spirits. Uh-huh.
0: So and for people who don't know, Southern Wine and Spirits, it's, there's like a few big, you know, yeah. um, companies. I uh, will get into what a book is maybe in a minute. But they are the ones that are supplying you with all the, the main brands. You like know, big the, grocery
1: store brands. Big grocery
0: store brands. And not just um, wine, but
1: liquor. Everything. Um,
0: so, you know, yeah. uh, if you are a full liquor establishment, you generally have to deal with one of these
1: big two, three giants. Like big, yeah, big corporate um, wine distributors. So I did that for a year, which, again, I do not regret. I'm sure um, you learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot about these people are big for a reason. Right. Right. Yeah, I learned a lot about how they operate, mm-hmm. um, which was very important. Uh, but then I went to go work for a smaller uh, in in Texas still in Texas still, so, still in Texas so you're selling stuff to restaurants and yep and retail shops yep and things like I, that. yep I was a sales rep um so I went to go work for the smaller book that was doing really interesting um you know small production and um and just to just really quickly
0: in case people don't know and this is a term we use in the industry constantly is a book you yep. know what
1: what does a book mean yeah so that's basically like uh your portfolio. Right. Like I've always said to people, especially when I'm working with these small production and and more natural wine winemakers. um, I mean, in in many ways, I sometimes see myself as like an agent. Um, I'm an an agent to these artists, just like an artist agent is, Um, you know, I'm presenting their work Um, because they they see it like that. A lot of these smaller uh, production winemakers. So. So, yes, that's your portfolio. We also call it a book. The two are kind of synonymous. So if you hear a um, book later, she's not
0: writing a novel. Nope, I'm these not are, writing These are the wines not, that she carries. And not, a book is very important in, in the industry um, to know if you have a good book, you you know, that's, that's yeah. one leg up. So you're working for a smaller book, a smaller portfolio. Yep,
1: yep. And, and I have to say that, you know, I, I'm going to give a shout out to A.J. Hernandez, who was definitely one of my early mentors in the wine world in Texas, he was really, you know, of all, uh, uh, to that date, anyway, um, you know, this is like, I don't know, 2003, around there, 2004, Um, AJ was one of the first people that I had encountered yet, because I had been working at this bigger um, portfolio, kind of more corporate um, distributorship, and then Australia was kind of like a different kettle of fish completely. But AJ was one of the first people who, who took me aside and really um, showed me the importance of small production, hands-on winemaking that's, you know, not the grocery store wines. is kind of the obviously the opposite of that. And, and-
0: grocery store wines. So that's another kind of industry term uh, that we use. I mean, I've heard other terms as far as like factory wines. Right. Um, so you know, maybe explain... I mean, we can get to what smaller production is later, but, like, a grocery store wine is...
1: Well, I think, you know, for me, it means, first of all, it's obviously very large production. Because mm-hmm. um, to even be able to supply grocery chains, you have to have relatively large production. Um, and, of course, it's also, like, then ubiquitous as well if it's throughout all the grocery chains. So it's that. And then I, I think now we'll start to kind of teeter into the conversation of, like, conventional wine versus natural wine, and, you know, other than a couple of exceptions, um, uh, you know, conventional wines still to this day, although that again is starting to change now a little bit. Um, some of the conventional wineries are start, now starting to try to dip their toe into the more, you know, organic or, or quote unquote natural market now that they've seen it works <laughs> 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 and that people actually want it. Um, but yeah, they're more conventional wines, um, very large production. Um, so, so additives, know, preservatives. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, yeah. Uh, and the farming is rarely organic, although there's a couple exceptions to that too now. Um, so, yes, a lot of additions in the winery um, in in the past, anyway, were usually not organically farmed. Um, and it's just like in a completely different scenario. You don't have a. Uh, an individual or maybe a family or a couple of friends who are very, like, hands-on getting up and going out into the vineyard every day or into the winery. We're talking, like, a huge corporate environment. It's a factory. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always say to people, you know, it's like the difference between conventional wine and, and natural wine or even small production wine. It's a difference between going to buy a loaf of Wonder Bread at the grocery store or going down the street to a bakery and buying, like, a baguette from your local bakery. Yeah, more love. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay, so you're moving away from this idea of conventional wine, but you're still in Texas, you're working for AJ. Yep. And where are we going from but here? But
1: AJ was he, he's actually really the one who started the process of me of thinking about the difference uh, between large production and conventional wines and these kind of small production wines. We weren't even using the word natural wine.
0: Then, no, that comes way later in the well, world. Well, not,
1: th- not too much later for me, but but yes, like it wasn't really being bandied. In the market. Yeah, yes. it wasn't really being bandied about in the market. So, um, And I knew it was also time for me to, you know, choose a coast and get out of Texas. It had been great to spend time with my family, but I knew I wasn't going to stay there. And I'd already lived in New York, and I, and I love it, and I still go there quite often. But um, after living in Australia, I just could not go back to living in new york because of the weather no nah, the weather and life. Li- life is just too rough like i li- i did live there so i know that like for me i was like you know i think i just want to be like near the ocean well it might have been vineyards, extra rough for mountains. you 90s yeah. meatpacking district you yeah know. true uh but anyway so i i went to work for uh an importer and um
0: I in mean, california i mean what made you you just Chose a coast, and you're like, I'm going to California. Did you have friends?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, my brother was living here at the time, and okay. I also had a couple of other friends that were living here. Okay, so yeah, I had people here. There was a support system. I mean, to a, yes, to a certain extent. It right. was small, but there was something.
0: In Los Angeles, or well,
1: it's funny because I did No, I did move to Los Angeles because my brother was here at the time, and I had a couple of friends here at the time. Um, I mean, they've actually everybody I knew that was then here was is now gone. But I, I thought I'll go to LA for a year. And then I'll move up to the Bay Area
0: because
1: hmm. I'd, I'd been to both the Bay Area and L.A. quite a few times in my travels and in my life. And I really love the Bay Area. And L.A., I just wouldn't, had never been able to connect to. So I was like, OK, well, I'll go there for a year, spend time with my brother, et cetera. And then I'll I'll move up to the Bay Area because my, my job, I was a national sales manager. I could live basically anywhere I wanted. So you got a job in California right away. Oh, I already had the job. Okay, so you got it from yeah. Texas? Yeah, they, they were connected. They were an importer that we did business with, and they were looking for So AJ helped you get a job here, or you were still well, working for him? Well, AJ didn't really help, but... <laughs> they were not happy that I left. But <laughs> and, and actually, AJ had even left the company by then, and his partner was running it, so it was even more complicated. But, but, but it was an importer that I was doing business with in Texas, and she said, I'm looking for a national sales manager, and I said, well, I'm looking to get out of Texas. So... Um, but Are I already big or small, small. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Small. Um, so I took that job and moved out to California. And again, it, it was, it was perfect. It gave me a chance to kind of like get to know California, get to know the LA wine scene. But, but I was traveling two weeks out of four cause I was a national sales manager and I was covering like 30 States. So it's, it's ironic because the first year or two I lived in LA, I was hardly here. Like, I would be here for two weeks, and then I'd leave for two weeks. So what does a national sales manager do? I mean, that's... I mean, and it's also funny because this is before we even had, like, this is actually before we had our, our smartphones, and I had this some other GPS system, and the only places I knew in LA, for, like, literally for, like, a year and a half, the only places I could drive to were LAX, um, around Silver Lake, because I live there, and to Venice Beach. <laughs> and that's the only places I knew how to get to for a long time. Um, With your Thomas guide? No, I had one of those Garmin like early days navigation systems and they were so bad. Like it would, you would always end up somewhere like crazy, like on a dead end street somewhere or something. Um, So, a national sales manager, uh, you know, I was, you're basically, you know, you're the right hand to the owners if you're, if it's a small company. Um, So, I'm managing, you know, I think, When she hired me, I I think that she had about 10 distributors. So first part of my job was to add more distributors from different states, right? So I got us up to, I think, 30.
0: So she's importing wines, and she needs people to distribute them.
1: Right. So she had about 10 states um, that she had distributors in. Um, Obviously, she wanted to grow that. So I got, you know, landed new distributors, um, but I also had to manage the existing ones as well. Bottom line is you're trying to open up more states with this portfolio and you're then trying to sell more wine Um, and building relationships as you go and obviously all restaurants and and wine retailers. So, you know, all of these experiences I had added to my knowledge and my comfortability and later opening up my own company because I mean basically being doing that was and I also ran all the budgets like I did a lot actually because it was a tiny company. So, like I did kind of everything um you know, which was which which was great though like i I wanted to do everything because I learned everything. I learned how to do budgets, I learned how to do purchase orders, I learned how to manage distributors, sales reps, and managers. um yeah, it's funny just knowing you how I know you and knowing you you know
0: as a business owner and getting to know you throughout the years since you started your company, it's so hard to picture you working for somebody. <laughs>
1: It <laughs> really is. But <laughs> as you tell the
0: stories, it's almost like you were just, you weren't really working for them. You were just gathering information along the way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I know, it's true. I think I was always meant to have my own company. Um, but I think part of that was like the last several jobs in the wine industry I had. Actually, really after that big corporate uh, company that I worked for, at pretty much after that, all, m- th- most of the gigs I had, I was in charge of whatever like yeah. I was either the right hand person of the owner or I was just in charge autonomous, kind of. Autonomously. Yeah, I was autonomous. So we didn't really like they were just like, go do your thing. And and you know, I think it's like um in any industry, like if you perform, you know, people will leave you alone. And I always made sure that I performed, so then they would be like, Okay, you can do whatever you want, because you're, you know, you're producing results, so we're not gonna mess with you. <laughs>
0: So, when was the moment that you were like,
1: "I'm ready to do my own thing"? Um, well, I remember, and I'm still living at Silver Lake in Silver Lake at the time, um, and I, I just it, it happened like in a relatively short amount of time. Although it took me then like another like at least like two years to get my company up and running, but I remember like I came home one afternoon after being out and working or what have you. And, you know, I'd had all these samples from a couple of different company, wine companies that I had been working for. And, and they were all good wines and all good people. But I was samples like... Samples for your
0: new business? No, 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 no. From the... For who from, I was working okay. for. right, and, right, right.
1: And, uh, you know, and, I, and they were all good people and all good wines. But I was like, I don't want to drink any of these wines. I don't want to drink any of these wines. And I was like... Why? I just... They were just not my... I I had started drinking like, you know, more like Beaujolais and Loire and like... Um, lower alcohol, higher acid, lighter bodied wines, and I was being naturally drawn towards the style again and again, and and I was just becoming, you know, kind of slowly and quietly over time, that was, my own palate was changing. Is this when, like, jammy California wines were big, or? Yeah, I mean, they were still pretty big back then, Yeah. yeah, I mean, relatively, they were, yeah, they were still pretty big back then. And, yeah, so I just was like, you know, and, and I, you know, even though I had, like, cases and cases of wine at my house at all times, I was still going out to buy, like, Beaujolais and Loire and lighter-bodied wines. And it's what I was enjoying. And I remember one day being like, I know how to run an entire wine company now. I've been doing it for years. I also know how to sell wine. Why don't I just, like, put together a portfolio and sell wines that I actually like and um, and that I'm interested in and that I want to drink at night like I want to sell wines that I feel passionate about Um, so that's where it all started and I mean I you know I went and And like I said it was in some ways I mean it, it was hard and easy like we didn't um Nobody was really in California back then. The only other book back then that was bringing in natural wines was Farm, and they only started three months before my company. Which is still around and thriving. Yep. And so this was
0: just, you know, you want to drink your wines, you want to sell your wines. So this was more of a natural progression than doing a restaurant or – a retail shop. You just you, because you were working in distribution, it just felt right.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think I'd been working in distribution, and it, it's what I knew the best. But also, um, for me personally, um, restaurants I didn't want to do anymore because I didn't want to be I don't I didn't want to be working nights like five or six nights a week. I just didn't want that lifestyle anymore. I'd done it before, um, and retail too. You know what does appeal to me about being a distributor and importer is that I have a lot of freedom. Of movement and you don't see the same person or the same place every day you're on the move which appeals to my personality because back then as you said um i mean now i've got six sales reps um some you know at slash managers uh, and back then it was just me so i was you know on the road hustling with my bag like every single day, I was running around town seeing all kinds of people, having all kinds of conversations, and, and interesting conversations because as we talked about earlier, um, no, there's not a single person that, not a single sommelier, wine director, wine uh, retail shop owner, not a single one that I went to go see back in those days that had any idea about what I was talking about, or what these wines were about. Natural wines were completely unknown. Yeah, um, I mean,
0: not to cut you off, but when, you know, i first started buying wine, you know, I I was always looking for, you know, different, obscure, small boutique. Mm -hmm. And those were like more the words that things were around. It was, you know, Mm -hmm. organic, biodynamic, Mm -hmm. small production. Those Mm -hmm. were the things that we were talking about. The actual word natural, um, I feel like has only really become this wildfire catchphrase Mm and maybe the last like you know, five six mm-hmm. or so years. True, um, but they existed. Natural wines have been around for sure, uh, and yeah, it was just this kind of weird transition to see how it literally has caught on like wildfire, and I'm happy for it. It's a, it's it's a double edged sword as a buyer because the wines that I used to be able to get all the time are now like completely sold out and allocated, and that's great because these are the you know the people that we want to support. But I could see how. Back then, you know, the narrative, that it's not like today where it's like, oh, I carry natural wine. and Everybody's like, yeah, I want all of it. Where back then it was like, these are things that, you know, people are doing. And I was super into it. You yeah. know, I was very into small
1: mm-hmm. production
0: boutique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why it was funny, you know, to carry these wines at Perch, which I am, you know, no longer. I, I sold my shares of Perch. And now I'm sure that they're carrying things from the Southern books and the glaziers and whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. um, These grocery store wines uh, because it's just, it's a money thing. Um,
1: Yeah, but you know, when I was listening to you, what I was also thinking about is that Sure. Okay. One side of it is like these, like, say these are more like a slightly more traditional old school, let's say European natural wine producers whose production is quite limited. And so, you know, as natural wine has grown in popularity, those particular wines are less available. But on the flip side of that, as somebody who is a distributor, and, and I don't just distribute European wines. Matter of fact, if anything, I think I'm coming close to almost like domestically, um, uh, the portfolio has really grown. And... So yes, sure, some old school producers might have become more limited, but like the wealth of new young producers coming up who are making natural wines now that weren't 10 years ago is amazing and exciting. And I think that that eventually will um, counterbalance the fact that some of these old school European natty wine producers are, you know, whatever. It's hard to get like a bottle or two or whatever. But I have like, you know, if I think back to even the last year, I mean, I have like six, seven, eight dom- young des- domestic producers who are making really cool natural wines. And so I think it's also kind of like the rising tide lift all, lifts all boats. Yes, I mean, I I have... Mixed feelings about that uh, analogy <laughs> or a
0: phrase uh, as a business owner, mm. but um, but yes, I get what you're saying. There's this whole kind of new California movement where you know there's a lot of up and coming you know new California winemakers. But that that kind of leads me to one question. So you know, how do you pick a producer? Because, I mean, I know your process, and, and I, you're pickier the most, I think, when it, it comes to picking up new winemakers mm-hmm. or or other books that imported books. Mm-hmm. You know, what is your process? What what makes the cut for Amy Atwood?
1: Oh, I like that lead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it starts out with usually a conversation with the winemaker. Um, I want to feel like um, we have some kind of um, you know, uh, that we have the same kind of like approach to winemaking and to the wine business, that there feels like there's some synchronicity there. Um, and yes, that does usually mean that they're making wine naturally. And I think, so I need to actually kind of like the person to a certain extent. I definitely have to like the wines. So we usually have a conversation, they send samples. I taste that either by myself or with my team, depending on circumstances. Um, Uh, So the wine itself is, you know, at the end of the day, has to be delicious. I have to believe in it. Um, But I also have to be interested in the winemaker and believe in what they're doing um, and feel like we're philosophically aligned to a certain extent, you know. Um, I think those are the two most important things. And then, of course, you know, um, anybody who's approaching me about joining the portfolio you know, I'm going to ask some questions about like their farming and their winemaking, of course. And I'm always looking for, you know, organic winemaking. I'm always looking for so little... like certified organic or just practices. It could be either. Um, I, you know, it depends. It depends on the situation. I'm. I don't tend to be incredibly didactic or black and white about things. Like I want to. Like for me, again, these are relationships. If you're black and white, a lot of relationships are not going to last long. <laughs> so um, organic is important to me for many reasons Um, way beyond the quality of the fruit. It's like the quality of what we're putting back in the earth. Um, You know, but however, there have been people over the years that when I started with them, like, you know, i like, I I have several actually winemakers that I can think of that um, where this has happened. But one in particular that came on early, you know, early on, like 12 years ago, I remember I said, Hey, we were talking through all the vineyards and I said, how many of these vineyards are organic? And they were like, well, you know, only about 50 or 60 percent of them right now. Um, and I was like, well, OK, well, let's keep this discussion happening. And I'd love to, you know, obviously, I, you know, and they were like, yeah, that's what we want too, And now 12 years later, they're at like 90 percent organic. Vineyards, so it's also about like creating change through relationships and conversation. Because so I know that um, there are some hardliners out there, <laughs> um, but for me, it's more about the relationship, and it's also about you know believing in winemakers. Um, you know, it's interesting because we we have this conversation, um, you know, about where and how we want to put our support, and and the same with even the winemaking. Uh, again, about ninety percent of my portfolio is is native fermentation, right? Native yeast fermentation. There's not chemical or lab-produced yeast that's added to the wines. But there's also been winemakers over the years that I have picked uh, for my portfolio, knowing that they're not using native yeast yet, knowing that they have a plan to get there. Um, But again, um, I'm not a hardliner with that. I'm more interested in the relationship. I mean, for example, uh, Nsiki and Bella from, you know, Eslina, you know, I had a conversation with her about this, um, specifically around native yeast. Um, and she was like, yes, I can't wait to do it where I can afford to have my own winemaking facility so that I can use native yeast because right now I'm having to share with someone and they're inoculating. What Can you just really quickly describe the difference between native yeast and inoculated yeast? Well, native yeast is coming in on either the grape skins um, or stems. Um, and and or it can sometimes just be present in the winery, in the barrels or even in the general atmosphere of the winery. Um, But it basically means you're not adding a laboratory produced yeast. You're letting whatever yeast is either in the winery or on the grapes naturally start the fermentation instead of doing it with a lab yeast. And again, This one goes back to my Wonder Bread versus baguette because, you know, a sourdough baguette from your local bakery is started with a a natural like mother starter yeast. Um, And then Wonder Bread is obviously packaged yeast. So it's kind of, again, that's kind of a good, I've always loved that parallel.
0: So you were talking about relationships and how important that is. Yeah.
1: I mean, for me, it's like I've never, even though I was one of the first uh, uh, to sell natural wine in California, I'm probably not as hardline as some of the newer, younger companies who I've heard are are very hardline about this stuff. And for me, it's more important, um, the people that I'm working with um, and the winemakers. um, Of course, I want everybody to be hopefully either working towards either organic farming or native yeast fermentation but I definitely support and bring on some winemakers that aren't quite there yet. But, um, you know, like, Nsiki's a perfect example. She's the first, you know, yeah. black South African female winemaker. And she was like, yeah, if I had the money, I would do that. And so for me, it's a perfect example of also like the natural wine world being Give kind of an take. enclave. Well, and sometimes being an enclave of like kind of privileged whiteness and not really, and not really understanding that a lot of people have a different paths, even though um, we want the same thing but about it being a relationship and having patience and and working with people um, as they're on their journey. Yeah, and, you know,
0: on the line of relationships, um, to switch focus a little bit, so I know especially in the last few years, there's been a lot of light shed on misconduct in the hospitality and wine industry. And I just want to know... How you deal with it as an importer and distributor, if there's somebody that you work with directly or indirectly, somebody in your book that has accusations, do you, you know, do your own kind of due diligence or investigating of, of somebody that you are working with and, and how they may represent you um, if something comes about in a negative manner?
1: Yes. Yes, I do my own due diligence. Okay. And then again, make up my own um, mind of, of how much I want to be on a journey um with that person or not but yeah i mean i think we all know obviously you know uh, in, in the wine industry we had the valentina pasalacqua and her father there's been several, there's I been mean, several.
0: honestly there's been several, been several male but the, but the, female uh, right but i mean that was non-sexual
1: that was really the only one that um i decided not to work with anymore um even though it wasn't really a direct uh, you know her family was accused um of labor abuses and and she, i Ultimately decided that she was too tied in with her family for me to feel comfortable mm-hmm. um, to continue working uh, with her. But yes, anytime anything like that comes up, yes, I'm definitely going to do my due diligence. I say, and you know, look, honestly, I'm also uh, depending on um, the situation at hand. Um, in general, I'm about, and it, for me, this is the same as the farming and the native use and everything else. Um, I'm definitely interested in conversations and in journeys and in growth. Um, so if there is ever a way to have a conversation and growth through any of these circumstances, any, um, then I, I, I lean more towards that unless I feel like um, that's not going to happen.
0: Right. Have you ever had to break up with producers, uh, so to speak, not dealing with controversy?
1: And sure, but not very many. I've been really fortunate. So you've worked with a lot of the same people. Yeah, I've been really fortunate. Like most of my, the majority of my relationships uh, with my producers, et cetera, are very long term. They've most almost all been with me um, for a long time. There's really only been a couple um, and they weren't, yeah, there was no controversy or anything like that. It was just, you know... A parting of ways. Parting of ways. Okay. Our needs were not aligned anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, so, you're a bit of a serial entrepreneur. You and I talk about these things a lot. As are you. <laughs> uh, right now, we're actually um, sipping on uh, one of Amy's newer projects, which is uh, Blanco Vermouth, out of her Eno line. So, you make... Um, A wine under the brand, you know, you do a rosé vermouth under Flora, Mm -hmm. you also do a gin with a couple of other ladies. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to kind
1: of briefly describe all these projects? I'll give you the the short version. I mean, really, this all just comes back to what I said to you a few minutes ago. I really don't like to be bored. So, so, and not that I'm bored with my everyday job as a wine importer and distributor. I'm I'm not, but let's put it this way. I like challenges. Um, also, I am a curious person. I'm curious. And also, there's some things that I kind of just do for fun and passion. And, and to be honest, this vermouth, even, that we're sipping right now, this was like 100% a passion project. Um, it was for fun because I love vermouths. And I'm a, I'm a vermouth drinker, and, and both here in the U.S. and in Europe, um, I oftentimes will seek them out. Um, and So vermouth isn't just for martinis? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this one, honestly, the Eno uh, Blanc Vermouth that we're drinking right now, I actually, um, I prefer this either like um, on the rocks, which is how we're having it now, or even more so as a spritz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it was actually kind of made to be either on the rocks or as a spritz. So a spritz, you just add a little sparkling wine. Yep. Or, yeah. or sparkling water. Or sparkling wine. I actually do sparkling water, usually. Um and then same with the flora. There are not very many rosé vermouths in the U.S. There's really not that many in, in Europe either, to be, for that matter. Um, and again, that was just like a passion project. I was like, I love rosé vermouth. And, and Morgan McLaughlin, who's an amazing person and distiller, and... Um, um, just all-around magician, uh, who was uh, our original distiller for Future Gin. She and I just did it for fun, to be honest, because we both love vermouth. And we were we were like, I was like, do you want to make a vermouth? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, let's do it. Um, so the vermouths are just honestly for fun and for passion um, just because we love them. As the best projects. Yeah. Born, I mean, it's just are. like all these cool botanicals and you get to like play around with them for months. And, um, and then Future Gin... Um, Again, I love gin, <laughs> so um, it was kind of a no-brainer for me. I had been kicking it around for years in the back of my mind that I wanted to make a gin, but with the responsibilities of running my, my company, my wine company, I knew that I wanted partners. So um, Natasha Case and Freya Estreller, who were the founders um, of Cool House and are also wives and married, um, and then Mary Bartlett, who's a well-known spirits professional here in California and throughout the U.S. So I have three partners and uh, we make it here in downtown L.A. Uh, and again, for all of us, just that we love Jen. We love each other. This was like an adventure we all went on. I mean, we we started in 2018 um, and I think our we, our first production came out at the end of 2018 So we basically got like just over one full year in before the pandemic hit. Um, But again, that one's not just a passion project. It actually is a serious (laughs) like business project. Um, But I've also just loved it. I love spending time with them. We spent a year um, coming up with the the recipe, the formula and tasting different combinations before we decided on one. Um, And, And it's been great because all four of us have such a different skill set. And since, you know, over time, since 2018, we've all had different amounts of availability. And so there have often been times where one or the other of us would take on more running of the future gen um, company. Like actually Freya Estreller is is doing most of it right now. Mary Bartlett was before. I have at times, you know, before that. So it's been um, a nice balance between all four of us. and When really partners work. Yeah. When <laughs> partners work, it's great. And they all, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what I mean. We've all had times for either personal or professional reasons where we we're like, hey, I, I need to, I, I'm not going to be as available for a few months and the other one will be like, okay, I'll pick up.
0: So um, it's going to go that way. And for, you know, other art- entrepreneurs out there, I mean, with somebody who is wearing many hats and has, you know, some very successful... Beautiful hats, uh, so to speak. Um, I mean, is there any tips that you have to how to organize your time? I'm asking for a friend.
1: (laughs) I think you're actually pretty organized. (laughs) But I mean, I think what always helped with me is like um, I had been used to working from home for many years, even before I started my company. Um, I am not somebody that has a problem getting up in the morning. And answering emails and, like, prioritizing my time. And I think it's actually really small things like that. And, I mean, I always tell, like, my sales reps, especially new sales reps, I'm like, the most important thing you can do is be out there seeing clients. And truly, as as you started this podcast with, um, Mm -hmm. my first few years, that's all I did. Was go out and see clients all day. Yeah. I mean, if you I came remember. down
0: that hallway once, I would have never seen you. I mean, I would have never yeah. sought you out. I mean, yeah. everybody's different, but, you know, that persistence really spoke to your confidence. Like, I'm like, do I need to be... I, <laughs> I think I need to be carrying her wines. She seems so confident about it. I, I, am I a fool? Not I mean, too.
1: yeah. It's about getting, I, I think, in the wine business, get up, do your emails, and then go out and see your clients and spend all day seeing your clients. Because, uh, again... All of this comes back to relationships. Yes.
0: Relationships. Yeah. Isn't that life? So um, I know you love to do all these things and, and we talk about things all the time. I mean, do you ever think about
1: where you see yourself in 10 years? Um, well, <laughs> I do. Um, still, I, I mean, still very similar to what I'm doing now. Um, As my wine company continues to grow and I have such an amazing, amazing team, um, I really do. I'm so fortunate to have the team that I work with. Um, I think, you know, my goal is to over the years give them even an increasing amount of agency um, themselves. And decision making around company decisions, et cetera. So, so delegating
0: responsibility. Yeah. I mean,
1: that I'm already doing, but I think just more agency. Like I want them to be able to be even more involved in some of the decision making, et cetera. And that will happen. That will happen. And it it is happening to a certain extent. Um, but it will I think I see that continuing to happen. Um and same with future gen. Like we're 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 growing, we're about to go into about three or four more states right now. And um so same path, and I'll probably keep doing little fun, weird, little vermouth side projects, and I'll, you know. <laughs> just because those things bring me joy. not even really about the money. That's just, like, for fun.
0: Yes. I'm, I yeah. mean, we... Yes, we talk about this often. Uh, so the idea is to kind of slowly enjoy the fruits of your
1: labor? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and just have fun. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah,
0: hard exactly. work. I mean... It's interesting, you know, being somebody who loves to work too, you know, you you do see these kind of end goals where it's like, oh, what if somebody came in and offered me, you know, X amount of dollars to buy me out of what I'm doing now, which I love. I would consider it because there's always going to be something. Like, I'm always going to have an idea. I'm always going to have something.
1: Right. I I feel the same way. Like, uh, yeah, I feel the same way. Um,
0: Even if something's your baby and your passion project.
1: Yeah, I mean, and also I feel the same way. And more so just also that, like, I'm always going to be working on projects. Always. Until I, like, keel over. Yeah. Because it's just my personality.
0: So what gets you out of bed in the morning?
1: Mm, I mean, really? Pilates. (laughs) only because my Pilates instructor comes to my house. Um, But, I mean, that's literally what gets me up in the morning. But once I'm there, no, I mean, I enjoy what I do. I literally do. Like, I enjoy working with my team. I like all of them. I like when we talk on the phone and we see each other. And, uh, you know, a lot of them make me laugh with their emails, even if we're complaining about something. Um, I enjoy the winemakers I work with. I enjoy my clients. Um, So, like, I enjoy what I do. I mean, most of the time. You know, every once in a while, we have our days. We have our days. Today <laughs> yeah, we have our days. But I mean, I, I, enj- I, I enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah, I, uh, I enjoy I the am- people I'm doing it with. I enjoy what you're doing too. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, Amy, you've you've definitely helped shape my career, and I consider you a mentor and a really great friend in a lot of a lot of ways. And I um, look forward to doing more things and and being a part of your life and really. You know, I thank you for what you do for, for this industry and, you know, in L.A. and beyond, but, you know, really shaping um, what we're drinking. And and at the end of the day, yes, natural wine is this buzzword and, and it's trendy, but it's important and it's about, you know, Mother Earth and nature. And we really have, you know, people like you to thank, uh, you know, for all of
1: changing how we're, yeah. we're drinking. Yeah, and it's the people. Like, I'm just as interested in the people as the wine or more interested. So, um, but thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for saying those kind words. Yes. And, is and there... right back at you, a lot of respect for what you do <laughs> and everything you've created over all the years, specifically yes. at Vina Vornell, but.
0: Yeah, is there any last uh, parting
1: words you of advice or uh, that you'd like to? I mean, I think, well, first of all, I always tell other women and I was having this conversation with a a winemaker the other day like you can do it you don't need that much money I had like basically no money when I started my company and no investors and no anything you just need a lot of hustle so you know do it whatever it is that you're dreaming about do it and also have fun doing it and love doing it and love the people you do it with
0: you could do it yes